Consider the following, and some of the results you will hardly believe. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Teacher Turn Alchemist podcast. My name is Lydia, and I am pumped that you took the time to join me today. I ditched writing IEPs to brew some tea and do something bigger than myself, which is to brew kombucha for my local community while also hosting healthy food workshops, as well as training and employing adults with disabilities. This podcast is a verbal journal of all the progress, a lot of mess ups, and thoughts that I have along the way. If you're new here, the business is called Living Simple, Living Full Kombucha, and you can find us, right now it's just me, but eventually we, over at livingsimplelivingfull.com. Today is going to be a quickie episode. I thought that I would play around with an under 25-minute podcast and see just how I like it. Let me know what your thoughts of shorter episodes are, and perhaps I'll make them more often. I'm always up for meeting new people, and I would love any feedback and suggestions over at livingsimplelivingfull at gmail.com. Okay, so I am sipping on a new brew that I was not expecting to go so well. I was pretty fed up with brewing my hibiscus F1 as I could not get that stinky sulfur fart egg smell, you know what I'm talking about, out of the finished product no matter how hard I tried. And whenever I did samplings, the hibiscus brew always was one of the lowest rank ones. I initially had played around with hibiscus because I wanted to sound fancy. Okay, that's honestly the only reason. Plus, it made a really pretty pink color that I thought people would enjoy. I have not consumed hibiscus-flavored things in the past, but again, I thought that I was a sophisticated Sally trying out all these new teas, and at least I was able to brew her with success. I mean, the kombucha tasted alright, but it wasn't really anything I really wanted to continue to share with people. So I decided to switch hazel up a bit, which hazel is the name of my one gallon hibiscus brew, and I added in some rose hip tea to her as well. Rose hip tea, I again, I know nothing about it, but I read it was like really great in antioxidants and it paired well with hibiscus. I've been wanting to market a caffeine-free kombucha, and so I really wanted to nail down something with this ferment. So after brewing, I had a beautiful rose-colored brew. I looked at what I had on hand in the kitchen and came across some watermelons and strawberries. If you've been around, you probably know that watermelons was uh, not one of my favorites in the past to use for brewing, but I thought with this rose hip, I could give it another go. Then I also did a few bottles with a mixture of the strawberry and watermelon put together, which I knew I enjoyed because I love strawberries. Oh, hot dog, you guys. This turned out so enjoyable. Okay, though the watermelon one was a dud. Goodbye. So wonky, tossed it right away. It was gross. Way too vinegary. But the watermelon-strawberry combo can only compare to, I don't know, like I literally have no words for it. Seriously, one of the best flavor combinations I have ever tried. So I don't know how the strawberry transformed it so much, but I definitely fell in love We had my husband's family over for the holiday weekend and they all mentioned how much they really liked it and freaking bonus because all of them were non-kombucha drinkers and they were just doing it to kind of please me and they're like, I'll take a little sip. But after they tried it, they wanted another sip, which was so encouraging. So winner, winner tofu dinner. I love this flavor. So I am enjoying this flavor and planning to perfect it and make it again tomorrow. For my edit for the week, it's so funny that I'm doing this because I totally forgot to put it on this episode, and so this is me going back to edit. (laughs) Um, 
I feel bad because my audio has been a little wonky lately and I don't feel like I really, you know, I really shouldn't apologize because I'm learning this whole thing. I use Audacity to record and I have myself a little microphone and I'm figuring out how to add in splices later, like if I mess up with something. And the last week's episode was going back between the original recording along with all of my edits and whenever I edited, I couldn't find the exact same like voice level or gain level that I used before. So even right now as I'm doing this edit section, you're going to hear a slightly different voice level and I will get better at it. That's basically it. So that's all for the edit today. Going back to the original audio. If I had to put two emotions together that I have been feeling on the regular, it would probably be annoyed and unmotivated. And that is all thanks to alcohol. Now, your girl enjoys alcohol, don't get me wrong. I am super digging mead lately, especially now that I consume it on the regular thanks to my job at a meadery tap room. And I like to drink socially with friends, sometimes by myself with my cat. But hey, the alcohol is seriously the one thing that I feel like is slowing me down in this business right now. You may think, wait a second, kombucha is alcoholic? Let me quickly explain. Through the process of natural fermentation, small amounts of alcohol remain in the final product, and as the yeast consumes and ferments sugar, it produces CO2 and ethanol. And this is where that tang of the kombucha comes from, or vinegary, as some people put it. Some alcohol is then left over, and it can vary from brew to brew without specific measures put in place. Now, if you have listened in on episode number three of the podcast titled, What is Kombucha?, or you have known as you're like a fellow brewer, many brewers, especially home brewers, do what is called a secondary ferment, or F2 for short, in which after F1, fermentation one, they take the ready-made unflavored kombucha and they add in flavorings, usually fruit, and fruit can translate basically as sugar. And what happens is that that yeast is again reactivated and will continue to eat and ferment, creating more alcohol. Snap! So in order to qualify as a non-alcoholic beverage, which is definitely my goal, my kombucha brews will have to be 0.5% ABV or lower. If I do not hit this mark, then this would mean that I would need to pay additional tax to the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, which is more money and definitely a lot more hoops to jump through. Again, I'm not looking to go there. There are plenty of hard kombuchas, as it is known out there, by the way. It's brewed a little bit more differently, but it's definitely as delicious, and I would highly recommend if you are wanting to try something new and alcoholic. So anywho, if you are still hung up on the trace amounts of alcohol and how it could affect your body, you would have to drink a lot of kombucha in order to feel any effects. And by then, I would think that a major effect would have to be a huge belly ache, and I'd feel bloated myself. Non-alcoholic booch is non-inebriating, and can be enjoyed by all ages, including kids. I get that question a lot. Of course, if you have any concerns, I always want to say this, put that out there. If you have any concerns for your health before consuming, or if you are pregnant or breastfeeding, I always recommend speaking to your healthcare professional first. (sighs) So going back, naive me didn't really read into this whole alcohol thing well enough, and I thought, oh, I got this. I'm on point. So in order to submit my food processor application, there is a question that asks how can you ensure that your product is safe to drink and within legal limits of alcohol. And recently, the Kombucha Brewers International came out with their first ever code of practice and guidelines to follow so as to show transparency and proof that kombucha is indeed safe to drink. 
One such guideline was to have your kombucha ethanol tested using approved methods. With the small amount of alcohol that is produced during fermentation and because of other factors, not to get all sciencey, but things like temperature, light waves, oxidation to name a few, it makes some in-home testing equipment, such as like a hydrometer, more inconsistent and not as reliable. And the most recommended testing to calculate ABV levels, uh, I said levels with a B, levels, is by using headspace gas chromatography. I just feel cool saying that. But yes, uh, headspace gas chromatography. And because I am definitely not a chemist, and I know I'm going to jack this up, I'm going to leave a link to a diagram and an explanation in the episode notes to explain better what this process looks like. The worst thing is that headspace gas chromatography can only be done in a lab. Dang it. Ugh. So another hoop that I didn't realize I had to jump through. So I went on the hunt. I knew one thing that I didn't want to deal with was the hassle of having to pack up all of my samples to send somewhere far away. Holy cow, you guys. Have you ever had to ship something refrigerated? What an absolute mess and not to mention expensive. So I tried to find something more local to me and that was also cost effective. I was really excited to come across one lab in Madison, Wisconsin that specialized in this gas, uh, headspace gas chromatography for kombucha named Advanced Analytical Research Lab. And I was really excited. I made an appointment. It was a lot less expensive as I could just drive there and I could drop off the samples in person. And that way I could also see that my samples had made it safely too. And Madison for me is only about an hour and a half. And so I just made the trek there with my husband and within 24 hours, the test came back and I failed. (laughs) Yes, so I'm gonna tell you all about this nice fail after a quick break. Yeah, so I failed the test. Out of the four samples, all four of them failed. And three out of the four were almost 2% alcohol ABV levels. (laughs) Oops, oh goodness. Okay, so now now thinking back, I probably was drinking like a one to two percenter during the last period every day at school. There was one of my coworkers that always joked that I was overly happy all the time and equated it to my homemade booch containing more alcohol. I guess she was right all along. Oh man, I can't get sued now that I've already left, right? Okay, and for the record, the last period of the day, the students were gone because it was more of a day program and ninth hour is my prep. So I was not in direct contact with students and I will swear by those B vitamins all day, giving me a boost and not any of this said supposed alcohol. So anyways, I digress. I wasn't too mad that I did not pass this test as this is really the first time that I knew how much alcohol that my kombucha contained, but it did make me go back to the drawing board because I needed to find a better method to uh, lower my ABV and remain consistent. There were really great resources online and I was a part of many forums, I still am, and they're fantastic, that really give great advice to help me lower um, all of my levels, like my ABV levels. Uh, One was to shorten my F1, and then the second was to not keep at super high temperatures because that increases the fermentation. And lastly, it was suggested to strain the yeast out of the brews to limit the amount that goes into bottles to continue fermenting. So I thought I had this down. I did a batch or two. I felt really good about the process. The taste still tasted pretty good to me. Actually, it tasted great. I'm not trying to underestimate myself. It tastes great. (laughs) And I made another appointment in Madison. There once more, this time it was on my own. My husband started back up with school and I got the report back the next day. 
the results, I failed again. I freaking failed again. And this time, some of my brews that were lower had gone up in ABV. I was still in the 1% to 2% range. Ugh. And these tests, they ain't cheap, by the way. They are $35 per sample, which I'm not trying to bash on um, this lab here. They were fantastic people. I would highly recommend them. But, I mean, they have they have to make money too. So $35 per sample. And I had five of them. And then they're, they're gas, they're in back. Let's just say that I was stunned and I was pretty ticked and I was out of money. <laughs> and it did not help that when I got the test results back, I was already slightly inebriated, hanging out with some friends. <laughs> and um, on the car ride home, don't worry, my husband drove my drunk butt home, but I had a full-on pity party. Like, oh, I can't believe this happened. And I was like crying snotty tears of, I'm never going to be able to. And usually when my husband sees me like this he's all like it's okay honey holds my hand but this time it was totally different he was like stop it okay so you didn't pass you knew that you were going to have lots of hurdles and again this wasn't like exact quotes I again I was sad and drunk but it was pretty much along the lines of he was firm and told me to freaking grow a pair and to just keep going so back to the beginning again I went not expecting to go back to the beginning but after doing some more researching I came across more commercial brewing posts and how it basically is physically impossible to create no alcohol in home brewing processes, specifically F2, and said that the lowest amount of alcohol that a home brewer can mostly obtain is between 1% to 2%. Aha, okay, so that was me, that is where I fall. I also found that many traditional home brewers brew at an average of a 3 to 4%. And that was shocking to me. As a reference point, a Miller Lite is like a 4.2% ABV. <laughs> but I can see how many home brewers would get to this because, you know, in order to build natural carbonation, for example, you need to add more sugar, especially in the F2. And this unfortunately will produce more alcohol. Boo. So. Anyway, how can I get a good tasting kombucha without compromising fizz and then also nailing this low alcohol level? Let's introduce the symbiosis fermenter. And that sounds fancy, but it basically looks like a deeper rectangular tray similar to what lunches are served in at public schools, only with like a spigot, a drain, and a cloth to cover. Basically, instead of using large jars to ferment in, I would brew in a fermenter tray that has a higher surface area. And with this higher surface area, the balance is shifted towards bacteria instead of yeast, which if you think about that SCOBY again, that symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast, those two superstars, bacteria is being produced, but also yeast. And with this larger concentration, or I'm sorry, the larger surface area, the yeast is able to kind of... Uh, back down a little bit, which is the culprit for alcohol production, which then will reduce overall alcohol levels. Does that make sense? Um, it's kind of starting to make sense to me. I'm definitely still not the pro, but that's kind of my understanding of this symbiosis fermenter. So I went to go get my hands on one of these. After researching and comparing, they range from a couple hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars. And at this point, I'm really not in a position to buy. So that is where my unmotivation is coming from right now. As I feel like the brewing I do at home is all for nothing, it seems. And because I know the brews are coming out at a higher ABV, even if it is only 1%, I really don't want to offer this to people. And I really don't feel comfortable marketing about it right now. 
you know, I've been a little bit more lazy lately. Uh, this this news, and it's just hard because I'm waiting to build up the funds. And um, I'm just sleeping in more, not wanting to super dive in some days because of the setback. And even this morning, I'll admit, I was not in the best place to work. But as I got started on some work, even writing this podcast episode, I realized that there is still a ton of things that I can put my mind to and prepare for. And just because I cannot brew to sell doesn't mean that I need to stop brewing altogether. In fact, I need to continue to perfect my flavor profiles, streamline my processes so that when I do get into a commercial kitchen, I should be all set. It's a little daunting seeing all the money that needs to be made before continuing, but I can still continue to move forward. Someone posted this on an Instagram story that I appreciated from this user. Her name is Sanira Medhani. It reads, stop giving up so quick. Success does not happen overnight. You may not get sales right away. Your class might not be full the first few times. You probably won't get booked up immediately. But if you keep pushing, you'll be surprised how things start to pick up. Don't give up. Hmm. Hits you right there, doesn't it? Yes. I also found um, a fermenter tray that fell right into my budget. But they're back ordered right now, and I should be able to get them in October. So I'm really excited to get my hands on that. And yeah, in the meantime, I'll continue to brew. Have you ever felt annoyed or unmotivated in your business? I really want to know about it. Uh, setbacks suck. They make you even reevaluate sometimes if this is the right thing to be doing and working towards. But with every setback, I've seen even more things that work really well for me or has worked for me. I can't forget that my family love this new watermelon strawberry flavor I discussed earlier. I am now brewing the most gallons that I ever have from home. I'm up to eight and I'm really proud of that. I have the time now to work during the day on this business without having to come up with lesson plans and I'll continue to make more progress. And today I think I needed this message more for myself. Keep going guys, we got this, especially you fellow entrepreneurs. I'll finish up with a success story from my teaching days because goodness knows that I need this. <laughs> and if you're new here, I like to bring in a teaching memory each episode to remind me where I've been, how far I've come, and just spur me forward as I continue to build my unconventional classroom of a tap room. And today, like I mentioned, a success story needs to be my cup of tea. Also, I feel like you're going to get a kick out of this because I taught a content area that was not in my wheelhouse. So to get started, um, my when I moved to Illinois, my teaching license didn't naturally transfer, even though I had worked previously one year next door in Indiana. Illinois has this dumb rule about taking their tests, even though I had taken basically the exact same test with a different name that were valid in like 45 or so out of the 50 states. But anywho, I had to take and pass a series of their tests before being able to apply for the Illinois public school system. It took me roughly about three quarters of a year, so I missed a whole year of teaching while I took these tests. Ugh. After passing, I had what was then called a provisional license with stipulations which basically was, it wasn't like the best license. It was only valid for a year and it really didn't make me as marketable of, of a teacher who held a professional educator's license. But I was offered a job at a school about 15 minutes away from my home um, at the time in a high school teaching special education learning resource in the content areas of, get this, biology and language arts. My fellow SPED teachers know what it's like to be a master of all trades, but I would be quick to say I did not feel like a master at all, especially in these content areas. In Indiana, for reference, I went to school to be a special education teacher to adults with severe disabilities. Think more behavior management, using assistive technology, 
life skills, daily living skills than content area. <laughs> I laugh because Illinois' ridiculous test that I had passed made me qualify that I could teach K-12 through mild special education. <laughs> I, I do not get the system, but anywho, I'm going to focus on the biology class for today's story. I was given 18 students, all with learning disabilities and emotional disabilities, and many of those students, their second language was English. To put it easier, the majority of the students had difficulty reading, writing, and spelling, and then understanding some larger concepts unless it was broken down, and their attention span was low, which I attribute to them being all freshmen and sophomore. <laughs> the school provided a curriculum for me and said that I could go at whatever pace I needed to cover the concepts so the students would understand. And with my class, I found out often what would take another class, like a general education class, uh, one to three days to cover, it would take my class up to two weeks to master. And I definitely would need to revisit these topics in order um, to demonstrate mastery. And not being too rehearsed in biology myself, with it being like a hot 10 years or so since I had taken this class in high school, I tried to get ahead of my class by relearning the material. I feel like I was like a day ahead of them. It was terrible. Think mitosis, meiosis, DNA synthesis, anaerobic respiration, and animal classification. Mm -hmm. They told me that I would be teaching in my classroom that I had already been teaching language arts in. So I was just basically in the same room all day long. This room had no windows, no counters, and 20 desks would like absolutely fill up my room. I always compared it to a large closet and the desks couldn't even fit in rows. I put them in pods so that students could all sit comfortably. But with the students being in pods again, going back to that attention span, I feel like it was a lot harder to control because they were almost facing each other and they always wanted to like interact with each other. So that was a little tricky. When I looked at the other biology classes at the high school, I found them all in labs. Nice, big, spacious labs, complete with equipment, large counter spaces with lots of sinks, a skeleton in the corner, you know how every biology class is one of those, and probably some kind of life in an aquarium. So after a few weeks in my classroom, I could tell I really wasn't providing what the students really needed. I could draw pictures and I can explain all day, but how my students process was not by reading and listening. If anything, that was a lot more difficult. They needed hands-on activities. So without having access to materials, labs, and not really knowing where to even start with this, because again, this is not something I majored in, I met up with the veteran biology teacher at the school and I asked him if I could borrow some of his materials in order to get my students some hands-on interaction. At first, I think that he was a little surprised by my request. And even a little skeptical, not knowing me, this brand new teacher, and not really knowing my students, I feel like he thought that I or my students were going to break his materials, but he gave me a little to begin, and then he gave me more as I proved to him that I could keep his materials safe and organized. I would track across the school to the biology labs and then back across to the special ed wing. Ugh, I always hated how we were always separate, but... I would try to duplicate labs using the student's desk. But what I was left with was a huge mess, not enough space to really work around, and not to mention there was not really a good way to wash up unless after students left the room. So after a month and a half, I looked at my schedule and how it aligned with the other biology teachers, and I realized that there was one full period that the teachers or students did not use one of the labs. Sweet! 
okay, why the heck had I not been notified? I'm a biology teacher too. And as it aligned just right with my student's current class, like I was kind of shocked. I met with the principal and I asked if I could have my class in the lab during that time. And I did get a little pushback. Do you think the students could make it on time? Are they going to get lost? Will they be okay with equipment? Blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. They met well. And again, I wasn't mad. They were fantastic people to work for and work around. But again, there is my frustration again with assumptions based off of perceptions. I convinced them to let me and I had the room officially change. My students were freaking thrilled, and I was too, honestly. They were so excited to even just be in another part of the building, and for the most part, respected getting there in a timely fashion. I really feel like compared to the other students, they respected the stuff so much more because they realized that this was something special, and I don't know. Yeah, I just, it's, it's crazy, but we eventually got in there. I was able to conduct labs, wash up afterwards because everyone had their own sinks, I could definitely see in their assessment results that the material was being absorbed much better. I was so darn proud of them, and I was pretty darn proud of myself. (laughs) I even had one student show me a picture of Sandy Cheeks the squirrel off of Spongebob. Do you guys know who I'm talking about? And (laughs) he said that it resembled me because he goes, you smile like this. And he puts on this huge grin and says, and you're a scientist, because apparently she's a scientist in the show. (laughs) I proved to myself, although it definitely was not easy, I strive for what I thought was right for the students. I learned how to teach something that I did not know that I could teach. And yes, although I do have a goofy smile, I proved that I was also a scientist. (laughs) Oh man, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you haven't joined me over on my email club, I would hope that you would consider joining over at livingsimplelivingfull.com where I continue to send more updates of the journey and when I will be able to sell. If you're interested and are a fellow brewer and want to use the same lab as I did, I'm going to link AAR Labs in the show notes below. And in the meantime, I will drink my low alcoholic booch, continue to brew, and save up money for that fermenter so that soon I can share with you this delicious stuff and bring another classroom to the community. Cheers! Cheers!